Hi, y'all. Good morning. Um, hi. Hello. <laughs> Every time. My name is Kiva. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I love the warm welcome. Thank you so much, y'all. Um, I'm going to start today with a question and a story. So question, when was the last time you learned something challenging? So it might have been a practical skill. Maybe it was formal education. When we are in learning mode and being challenged in our thinking, oftentimes some fresh insight from a teacher or mentor or a friend becomes a key to our understanding. When I was in grade school, I liked math, and then it started getting more difficult, it started requiring more time, and then I started to hate math. I had a couple of years of struggle, and then I met a teacher who made everything make sense. None of her concepts were new, but her way of explaining and approaching problems completely changed my trajectory of learning and my relationship with math for the rest of my time in school. Good teachers will patiently stick in there with you, helping you to see things from a different perspective until it starts to make sense. Over these last few months, we have been journeying together through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, following Jesus, our ultimate teacher, as he instructs us about life in his kingdom. We have been looking at Jesus' words through the lens of true human flourishing. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites listeners into a way of flourishing that was new and surprising 2,000 years ago and is still countercultural and relevant for us today. In his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, commentator John Pennington has lots of really good things to say about this, some of which I will hit a little later. His premise is that true human flourishing, our highest good, can be found in response to Jesus' call to wholehearted orientation toward God. So today we wrap up the sermon. And like the good teacher he is, Jesus uses really carefully developed illustrations to help his listeners gain a new perspective and truly understand and respond to the invitation to follow him. If you would join me, I'm in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not perform, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many, many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet 
it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In this passage, Jesus teaches his listeners by comparing and contrasting all kinds of things. And throughout this entire section, Jesus helps his listeners to know that there's really only two ways. There's two options. There's two ways of being in the world and only two ways that his listeners can respond to his invitation. So we're going to take each section in turn, starting with verses 13 and 14. Again, it reads, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So Jesus begins a section with an analogy. The first gate that he speaks of has a really narrow entrance. And according to the definition, it's narrowed because of a lot of obstacles. Continuing on with this description of the narrow gate, verse 14 goes into more detail. This small gate is connected to the image of a narrow road, and the definition of narrow in this verse is a way that is compressed or pressed. Although this entrance to life is small, because of all the obstacles, it's the entrance to life. And life here refers to life everlasting, true life, from here in our mortal bodies into eternity, through our earthly deaths to Jesus' return and our promised resurrection. There's one more defining characteristic of this small entrance to life on a pressed road. Only a few find it. Jesus wants his listeners to know that there is one way to life eternal with him. This road will be filled with obstacles. Travelers will feel pressed, and it takes some searching to find. And likely because of all these things, only a few will find the entrance. But that sounds less than fun, right? That sounds pretty hard. So why would anyone take this narrow road if they knew that there was another option? Taking the analogy a little deeper, Jesus seems to be saying that by nature of being alive, we are all headed somewhere. There are only two entrances that we can be headed towards. One, though challenging, leads to life with him. And then there's the other entrance. It's wide, and to the untrained eye, it probably looks pretty promising. Instead of narrow, compressed, obstacle-laden path, there's a huge entrance, and it's spacious. But Jesus warns, be careful about the road that you choose, because this path ends in utter destruction. Unlike the small gate and the narrow road, many enter through this way, and it sounds like they don't have to search really hard to find it. Jesus seems to be saying there are only two ways. There's a wide way and the narrow way. And the invitation here is through the small gate, the narrow road that leads to lasting life. Through this analogy, Jesus is telling his listeners that there is something about how we live and act and make choices today that will be directly connected not just to our experience of eternal life with him, but our access to it as well. The direction is to enter presently, now. And it serves as a really clear warning to his listeners that the smaller, sometimes difficult decisions to follow the way of Jesus today are actually the way to life with Jesus forever. 
listeners need this warning stated clearly because it's pretty counterintuitive. So I'm going to start by saying I am not a hiker. I've learned to enjoy being outside in green space in response to not being able to go outside more often in the winter, but I'm from Southern California originally, and when I lived there, I would not just go outside to hike. It was not for me. If I found myself outside hiking and I saw two paths before me, there was one clear and spacious, especially if it's paved, and then there's the other one that's like narrow and overgrown and has a lot of obstacles, I would choose the wide path every time. And I know some of us in this room are adventurers and would love, I was thinking of you, and would love to jump into an uncleared path. But Jesus seems to know his audience and he knows our nature and he knows that we often choose the path of least resistance. What Jesus seems to be saying is that life in the here and now should not be lived by going along the path of least resistance, even though it's alluring. There seems to be something about this unhindered path that is not the way of Jesus. So what then is this way of Jesus? The immediate context from his sermon says that it is a way filled with deep right-relatedness to God and to others. The way of Jesus looks like being freed from letting anger eat you alive or drive your responses to others. It is choosing to fight lust like your life depends on it. It is allowing to help allowing God to help you to choose love and grace and forgiveness and generosity for those who intentionally sin against you. It's looking to God for affirmation. It's living generously because we believe our Father will care for our needs, and it's treating God like the Father he is and asking him to meet our wants and our needs. It's taking Jesus' words seriously that though engaging in life like this can be challenging, there's so much good for us in it, both now and in eternity. Further, for those of us who are hearing these words in 2023, we have especially good news as we try and walk along the way of Jesus. We know the story. We know that we don't have to do it alone. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us we don't have to like work harder or try harder to stay on Jesus's narrow path, but that God gives his people grace to walk this road. That Jesus himself is on this narrowed road, encouraging us and supporting us, and that as we walk in his way, we are strengthened to continue to walk in his way by the power of the Spirit, choosing into life in his kingdom. Um, a while back, I was in a situation where I felt like an acquaintance was regularly taking advantage of me, financially and emotionally. And while I was in it, I did my best to keep my head above water, but as I reflected on our interactions, I could see the tendrils of bitterness making its way around my heart. And I realized that if I truly believed myself to be a follower of Jesus' way, I had to at least consider forgiving someone who I thought was regularly and intentionally sinning against me. Even as I felt this person was more deserving of my bitterness and my irritation, I knew that that was not the way of Jesus. 
And I knew that clinging to hurt and disappointment and reveling in how wronged I felt was ultimately only going to hurt me and my faith. And so during that time, my invitation into walking the way of Jesus, his narrow road, was intentionally releasing my frustration at feeling taken advantage of every time it bubbled up. And I want to add here that uh, without Jesus, I'm really good at holding a grudge. Very good. So to me, this points to the power of God at work in me, that choosing Jesus's way and being both encouraged and supported to continue to walk on it, even when it feels challenging, helps me to continue to choose into his way. It's become clear to me that even when it's tough, his way is ultimately for my good and my formation into someone who looks more like Jesus. So Jesus is saying his way will feel full of obstacles, and at times it must be searched for, but... Jesus says to his listeners, it is so worth the cost, and you don't have to do it alone. In verses 15 to 23, Jesus continues to compare and contrast. It reads, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In this next section, Jesus starts with a warning. This time it's around false prophets, those who are claiming to hear from God and helping to guide God's people. He describes them as folks who pretend to be sheep, part of the flock, but are actually predators ready to feast. Jesus' direction is not to try and figure out who actually is or is not a prophet sent by God or part of the flock just by looking at them because it would be nearly impossible to tell. Instead, followers should discern by looking at the fruit that these people produce. Jesus says, we know that a good or a healthy tree produces good fruit, and we know that a bad or diseased tree produces rotten fruit. Just like you wouldn't go around rooting through a thorn bush trying to find a fig, you wouldn't go to a diseased tree expecting to find healthy fruit. And here's the crux of his argument. If you went to a tree that you thought to be healthy, and it only ever produced rotten fruit, you would realize that you were mistaken. And in fact, this must not be a healthy tree. So Jesus explains that a healthy tree cannot produce diseased fruit, and a rotten tree can't make beautiful, healthy fruit. He goes even further, saying that if the tree that was supposed to be producing healthy fruit only makes rotten fruit, the only thing that tree is really good for is firewood. No one would keep around a rotting tree producing rotting fruit. And then he ends with this subsection. By their fruit, you will recognize these false prophets. So how does this warning about fruit production relate to the warning about recognizing false prophets? 
Jesus seems to be saying that it is impossible to separate the fruit that these false prophets produce from what is going on internally. If on the inside they're healthy, then we will see healthy fruit. If they're false or diseased on the inside, then they will produce rotten fruit. So we're going to hold on to that as we move to the next subsection. In these last few verses, Jesus has been super practical by teaching his listeners what to look for in the here and now as they live life in their community. But just like when he was speaking about the gates, he quickly makes a shift from warning about the present to teaching about the realities of entering his eternal kingdom and life with him forever. Jesus talks about that day. Speaking of the final judgment, he says that people will call out to him for entry into his eternal kingdom of heaven, but not everyone will have access. Entry into his kingdom is only for those who have done the will of the Father. And so people are clamoring for entry. Jesus explains that many will point to their works of power as a guarantee of their access into his kingdom. We'll notice the repetition of prophecy from earlier, as well as those who exercised demons, those who worked miracles, all in the name of Jesus. And instead of a warm welcome or a celebration of works without relationship, Jesus responds that he never knew them. He tells them to leave, and he calls them evildoers. Something really interesting about this word evildoer is that Jesus isn't being flippant here. He's being really precise. The original translation refers to evildoers as those who practice lawlessness because they're either ignorant, disregarding, or intentionally violating the law. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the same listeners that he in the flesh is actually the fulfillment of the law that they had been trying to follow. John Pennington explains a connection like this. He says, Jesus redefines law-keeping as his own authoritative reading of the law over and against the religious rulers of the day. True law-keeping or true righteousness was not simply observing the Torah or external law-keeping. True law-keeping was obedience to Jesus. So if one is an evildoer, a violator of or disobedient to Jesus' words, Jesus says he doesn't know them. To be known by Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the final judge is to be a follower of his words and his way and is connecting to knowing and doing the will of the Father. So it seems like these folks aren't followers of Jesus, but they're doing all these powerful signs. Isn't that the fruit that Jesus was just teaching about? Jesus seems to be saying that these works are, in fact, fruit. And to the human eye, it might look healthy. But there's something really unique about Jesus who can see straight through actions to our heart. Jesus can see that the fruit's rotten and that what's on the inside of those who reject his teaching is far from healthy. Though worded strongly, Jesus is not saying anything new here that he hasn't already said in previous sections of his sermon. He is once again trying to help his listeners understand what it means to follow him wholeheartedly from the inside out. I think what Jesus is saying here is that those who are outwardly exercising power gifts but are not inwardly transformed by him are not actually his disciples. Jesus encourages his followers to discern the fruit that they're seeing from those who claim to hear from the Lord and have influence on his followers' lives. And he explains that eventually it will be clear whether the inner life of a person and their outer actions have aligned. 
And we've all seen examples of that, right? Things look really good on the outside. There's somebody's shiny actions, maybe their charisma, especially if they look super holy or powerful, start to blind us to some of the quieter, missing truths that we would see if we were looking for the deeper fruit of faith in Jesus, like their humility or integrity. Even though Jesus is instructing his listeners to look carefully, he knows that we will sometimes just miss it. Jesus is saying that unlike us, he will not be fooled by big external actions as he will always recognize his disciples, those who are wholeheartedly following him. This section warns specifically about false prophets, but we can probably extrapolate some nuggets of truth for all believers, ourselves included. Returning to this idea of the two ways that Jesus is highlighting. One way is pretending for an audience or putting on a religious show. I think that Jesus is saying that the other way of being is allowing oneself to be led and challenged and changed, following Jesus's words from the heart and allowing this to flow out into our actions. Though these two ways of being might look the same on the outside, only one of those is true discipleship, according to Jesus. And the invitation, I think, here is into this true, wholehearted discipleship. Um, So here's where I'll throw up the flag. This is an intense section of scripture. It's actually one of my least favorite portions of the Bible. I don't know how I caught this sermon. Um, I think talking about judgment, especially access to Jesus's kingdom, might make some of us feel uneasy. We don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to misrepresent Jesus's words or his heart. Or maybe this is the first time that you're hearing anything like this and you have known Jesus to be nice and non-threatening and this feels really out of character or surprising. And if that's you, please hang in there. So one thing I really appreciate about this passage is that Jesus is so matter-of-fact. He's not preaching fire and brimstone to chide us into obedience. He doesn't avoid the topic of final judgment so we don't feel bad. He's merely stating facts. He's sharing the coming reality that is awaiting each of us and giving us a really clear and kind warning to carefully choose about how we live and respond to his words now. Jesus really cares that his followers are not being led astray, whether intentionally by someone trying to fool believers or by the enticement of a life full of external religious actions separate from a relationship and internal transformation. I don't think Jesus is saying these things to scare his listeners or us, and I think this warning is for our benefit. If we return to the premise of following Jesus into our highest good and our true flourishing, we could think of this section as our kind and wise older brother, full of love, pulling us aside and saying something like, our father has so much more for you than trying to curate your actions to fool others into thinking that you have got it all together. That is not God's best for you. I don't think Jesus is saying these things to cause us to question our salvation. Instead, he's pointing out a very real way of being that we can fall into if we're not careful. I'd encourage us to receive his words as an insight-filled warning from the one who knows us and as an invitation into a new way of being. These past few weeks, many on the stage have mentioned, mentioned the phrase, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. 
And I think this passage also exemplifies a saying. If we are expecting to earn our way in heaven with our works, we missed it. If we care more about how put together we look for others than we do about responding to the prompts of the Spirit, we missed it. If we think God cares more about our external works than his work in us, than true relationship, we've missed it. And we miss it at times. All of us miss it. But we don't want missing it to become a habit. And we definitely don't want missing it to turn into a life of putting on a religious show for others. So if you know me, you know that I love a list. And sometimes that can turn really vibrant faith into an external checklist of do's and don'ts for how to act as a follower of Jesus. Because of how I'm wired, I can easily be contented with my doing for Jesus and neglect my being with Jesus. And I can put an inappropriate amount of weight on what I assume to be good fruit without really checking in on my internal health or my connection. And knowing that, something that has been really transformational for my life and my faith these last couple of years is intentionally practicing the presence of Jesus. So I'll hold a Bible verse in my heart And it reminds me to remain connected to the Father and his love for me and become more aware of the invitations of the Spirit. Uh, We've got a joy group. Um, It's a small group of ladies, and we practice quieting ourselves on one truth of God. For example, we might take a day to remind ourselves how Jesus says that he is the bread of life, the only one who can truly satisfy. And then, as I go throughout my day, my thoughts and my hopes and my desires and my aspirations and my frustrations all run right up against that truth. Not only am I invited to express those things to the Lord, but then I can ask that he would fill in the gap, that he would help me believe that he's better than anything else this world has to offer. Through practices like that, I've noticed that being aware of the inner workings of my heart and leaning into how to be present to and taught by God changes how I show up. I'm recentered. I'm more appropriately relating to others, to God, and to myself, and I'm able to pour from the reserves that God is continuing to fill as opposed to pouring from an empty cup. Full disclosure, I fail at this a lot. I'm not as consistent as I'd like to be, and it's super easy for me to slide right back into neglecting the eternal. But it's a practice, and it's a trying, and a failing, and a trying again. And it's trusting that our good, and kind, and patient teacher isn't irritated at my attempts at learning, but cheering me on along the way. It's an openness to receiving a fresh invitation, sometimes even in the moment, to return to the good, deep, and internal work of being connected, led, and changed by our Father. To not be content knowing about Jesus, but knowing him and allowing myself to be known by him. And as I turn my heart back Godward, not only do I have full confidence that Jesus is there waiting for me, but also that God's own spirit has prompted me and reminded me to turn that he's willing and able to help me to continue to choose to remain present and committed to his internal work in me. And so I think the invitation that Jesus is putting forth about true discipleship is connected to being a healthy tree, that our actions, our fruit, are out of an overflow or a bubbling up of God's good and deep work in us. 
It's an invitation to return to the prayer that Jesus teaches when he says, Father, your will be done on earth as in heaven, not just through me and through my actions, but in me as well. So we get to the final section. This is verses 24 to 27. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus ends with a parable. Quick story. He said, there's two builders, one wise, one foolish, and the houses that they build might even look the same. Both of their houses face storms, but after the storm passes, only one house is left standing. The house of the wise man who built on a rock, a firm foundation. The foolish man built on sand, which is great to play with, but a terrible material to use as foundation if you want your structure to last. In the story, the exemplar is the wise man. But do we notice it's not just the hearing of Jesus' words that make him wise? Because the foolish one hears Jesus' words also. The difference is that the wise man is like the person who hears Jesus' words and then does them those that put Jesus' words into practice. Unlike the other sections, there's no direct warning here, but the warning, the direction is implied. So as we return to this, two ways of being. One is hearing Jesus' words and not doing them. Jesus is saying that's not just foolish, but it's guaranteed destruction. And then the other way of being is taking Jesus' words seriously that they're not just for hearing, but his words are for doing. As we move to close, Jesus used a lot of images, a lot of metaphors, some analogies, and a parable. So what's the takeaway? I think in this conclusion to his sermon, Jesus is soberly and clearly imploring his listeners with this message. Follow me. Follow me with your whole heart, Trust and follow my directions, and I will guide you to true life. Choose life even when it's tough, and I will help you to continue to choose it. So the overarching theme of the two ways seems to be found in this parable. You can either be a follower of Jesus, hearing his words, doing them wholehearted commitment inside and out, or not. The implication is that the listener must decide how they will interact with his words, and that feels like an appropriate way for us to end as well. We've received Jesus' clear warning and invitation, and the choice is ours for how we will respond. The really good news is that in saying yes to Jesus' way, to being an internally healthy tree, to being like a wise builder who hears and practices, is that he will equip you through his spirit, with all you need to continue in his way and into true life with him forever. Uh, I'd like to end our time with some silence, making space for the spirit to speak and encourage and invite. Um, so I'm just going to pray for us, allow us some silence, and then I'll close us. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to your people? Would you help us to be open and sensitive to what you want to say? Speak, God.
As you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we close. Uh, we have some folks who have uh, um, practiced listening for us, and um, there were two groups that this person saw that God highlighted. One, who feel him knocking today on their hearts, and the invitation is that he wants to come in. The second is for those who want to feel him physically, like we felt the drums in our body during worship. If either of those resonate with you, we've got um, prayer teams right over there in the corner um, who can pray for that or any other physical, emotional, spiritual need. Um, I'm going to close us in prayer. Jesus, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your invitation. Spirit of God, would you take this word and help it to bear much fruit in our lives? Would you give us what we need, Lord, to turn and to choose you again and again by the power of your spirit? We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. Go out and be the church.